Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. I am your host, Brett King, and uh, joining me is a cast of... uh, Amazing people, influencers, uh, you know, from around the world. We have uh, Jim Maroos, Cy Taylor, Theo Lau, and uh, my co-host, uh, JP Nichols, of course. I think we might have some others pop in as we go, but this is our 2024 Outlook show. We're going to get into it in terms of, you know, what can we expect this year, but what have we learned, um, you know, over the last couple of years and, uh, you know, where's the hype sit? What's the reality of this? And, you know, what is likely going to be the impact of things like AI on the space, uh, you know, over the uh, the coming 12 months? JP, what's your theory in terms of the hype cycles and how that is affecting the uh, the fintech space right now? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit it on the head, Brad. Uh, my view is that uh, we're going through hype cycles faster than ever, uh, and and not just the cycle. If you think about what Gartner has termed the hype curve, right? We have the peak of inflated expectations. Oh, this new technology, this new capability will change everything tomorrow morning, right? Close down your business and start something new. Um, you know, whether that's generative AI, cryptocurrencies, whatever. We've been through it many, many times. Um, Now, it doesn't mean that only the opposite of that is true, which is status quo or the starting point. Um, The the way the hype curve is drawn is after the trough of... uh, of um, Disillusionment. uh, Yeah, disillusionment is the uh, slope of... uh, productivity, right? And and that's really kind of um, a slope of enlightenment, right? Then the plateau of right, productivity. Right, right. And I think we're kind of in that slope of enlightenment with a lot of these things. We're going through it fast and furious. New technologies are emerging. At the same time, this return to reality that we started, you know, thinking about uh, towards the end of the pandemic crisis, it took a while for that Um to really manifest itself. And if you look at kind of what central banks have done with interest rates, you look at where earnings were still pretty good, the economy is actually doing better than most will give it credit for today. Um, Yet the perception of a tough economy is still going to drive a lot of belt tightening as we're seeing across big tech uh, and in traditional financial services. And Jim, maybe I'll I'll start with you and talk about that. Let's, Let's start with traditional financial services, mainline banks and credit unions, kind of what are you seeing there and how do you think this plays out over the next 12 months or so? You know, it's funny, looking forward versus looking back, you get so much enlightenment. I mean, when COVID started, everybody thought, everybody thought this is this going to be the big shift. This is insane. It's going to change business. It's going to change everything else. And at the end of the day, it, it just changed work models and only at certain organizations. It wasn't universal. But then the economy started to falter. And you found out, geez, you haven't seen pain until the economy changes, or you haven't seen pain since traditional financial institutions all of a sudden have to relearn how to generate deposits, which they never had to fight for business. And I, I think the 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 big aha moment probably comes because of the generative AI, which is just past its first anniversary. And you go, you know, if you want to question how fast things can change and the way we look at business can change, generative AI really gives us a pause to wonder because the the expansive opportunities is so great. The challenges are massive. But as you mentioned, at the end of the day, the financials of financial institutions haven't gone down. They they really haven't faltered. And so what happens is, do we get into a false sense of security saying, we don't have to do anything to change. The marketplace is still going to be good to us. You know, the, the legacy leaders that that don't change anything. They're sitting there still making money. And and yeah, you can bring case studies out on both sides, but overall, there's not a whole lot of pain except the pain of change. You have to keep on changing business models, but there's not well, a so in Valley Bank would like a word, but <laughs> <laughs> but I've also got a question. Jim, how do you spell deposit flight? 
How do we? Do? Yeah, yeah. Good point. Very good point. Yeah. But you know, the, in the pandemic, the the majors in the US did pretty well with deposit captures, um, just because they had digital, you know, capability comparative to like the community banks and so forth. But in the UK, it's a pretty different story. Hey, so you know, like um, the the challenges did pretty well, right? Really well. Uh, if you look at those banks, you know, like Monzo's got seven million customers. Their deposits are increasing. Starlings on the path to profitability. Um, in fact, it's been profitable for at least twelve months, and uh, Monzo is now one on month on month basis. Uh, I'll I'll set aside Revolut and their weird accounting, uh, yes. but there's they're not the only ones. Alica Bank, this is the one nobody talks about um, facing SMBs, is the fastest growing business in all of Europe, and it's a bank that takes deposits and lending, and it's entirely digital, run by a, a Richard Davies, former uh, HSBC guy. Like this is this is phenomenal, and now we're attacking not like oh, it's that little spend card that's pink, and they're not really getting the deposits, and it's not the it's not the real direct deposit. Yeah. It's not the it's not the paycheck that's going in. But Ron Shevlin's absolutely right. Their paycheck motels at best of the big banks these days, and at worst, they're an eroding mountain range. They remind me of the Colorado Rockies. They're not going anywhere anytime soon, but they're not getting any bigger. But other places are. There's volcanic eruptions of growth that most institutions are missing out on, and that's happening in fintech. So that complacency that Jim talked about is danger for shareholders, especially in an interest rate environment where you know inflation's been 10%. So what, your revenues are flat, and your EBITDA is flat, and your return on equity is flat? Great, you've gone back 10%. Well done, but you're going to tell a good story about that. Um, well, I mean, like, your, your cost of funds has gone up, and your cost of capital has gone up, and so you're actually moving backwards. So, part of what I think you're highlighting, Sai, is um, not only are we moving through hype cycles faster, but the disruption cycles are also faster, and so those, um, you know thin slice disruptions of, oh, they're only doing this right now. You, you look at Square, you can look at any number of companies. Um, and in a few short years, you know, they're now disruptors in multiple business lines. 100%. And, you know, what's your choice here? Is it stand still and get more of the same? Or like as a regional or a smaller bank, are you going to get into banking as a service where you've got a much higher chance of getting regulatory agencies kind of come and do an enforcement action on you that's how you grow and you get revenue or you're doing m a those appear to be your two choices as a smaller bank those don't sound like good choices to me or you've got to get great at digital which is kind of very hard to do if you've not got that muscle if you've not learned how to do it before which is why i think partnerships are such a crucial piece that's going to take off so yeah i'm with you you're absolutely right jp the transformation has happened we're going to look back on a, like a fintech baby boom of the pandemic period of where so many companies have been born but there's already so many that are getting productive profitable uh, and it it's there's a reason jamie diamond said he was what was it uh, i'm not going to swear but s scared of fintech like yeah and he he's he's actually switched on to the is a lot he 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 can see the numbers you know we you used to hear all of the the rhetoric prior to you know the sort of numbers or the the um results you're talking about Sai, was they're never going to they're never going to be profitable and they're never going to be able to manage risk as well as the majors as the incumbents we now know that to be demonstrably false you know if you look at um we bank you look at Alipay's SME business in, in China. You look at uh, Nubank in Brazil. Um, not only is Nubank the largest bank in Latin America, it's still the fastest growing, and their credit card delinquency rate is 30% lower than the average for the, the incumbent. So, you know, th th this, is, this data doesn't lie, and they're taking market share from someone, you know? Yeah, I, I do want to... I do have a question on that, and I have not followed it as closely as I should. I keep hearing a lot of chatter about Latin America, about, you know, Newbank, um, Brad, you just touched on, but also the other fintechs that's 
fastly growing because that's one I was following for a while. And um, I was really curious to see if we could invite them over to London for an event. And the feedback was, well, we already have 300 million customers that we're busy with in Brazil and we're doing so well. We don't need to look outside. Um, Are we seeing a case where we have these emerging markets that do not have the tech depth that can start fresh, that can use all of the technologies, JPS, you were talking about AI and everything to start new. And they have such a massive market opportunity that we're just being left further and further behind in the U.S. That's a rhetorical question. You know, (laughs) it's interesting, Theo, because death by a thousand cuts, except in those emerging markets, where it's death by one big cut. We see it. We see it often. You know, Simon, you mentioned it too. When I ask a room full of bankers, which is a real biased group, but it's interesting, a negative, a, a, an anti-bias in a way, how many of you have closed a, a primary account in the last five years? Nobody raised their hand. I ask then, how many of you have opened a brand new financial relationship in the last two years from a non-primary bank? And virtually everybody raised their hand. This is the silent attrition. And you, you mentioned, Brett, Jamie Dimon, the, the king of numbers. He knows what that outflow is. He knows that he's not getting the size of relationship he used to get. That's why he's building branches. It's not the way that anybody else in the marketplace can do it. They have some scale capabilities. But the reality is it's not the best way to go about business. He'd be the first to admit it. But, but the, you know, we have a challenge to you. I think, you know, when we look at Africa, when we look at China in a way, but when you look at, um, you know, all the emerging markets, Poland, anywhere, the fintechs are doing amazingly well. Why? There's as much trust or more trust in those than in the legacy banks that they never trusted to begin with because the government. And was... I think there's something there to your point about the unit economics in those markets. Yeah. Fundamentally, the unit economics for the US work for the existing banks. You know, they can still make that business case work and be profitable. You cannot do that for the mass consumer segment in Brazil historically. So that's driven a rise. Like you've seen an organization go from zero to 90 million customers in the space of less than a decade. That's to JP's point. Couldn't getting do that with branches. Faster. Yeah, with you zero couldn't branches. Do that with branches. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I well, you know, even if you had the budget that a new bank has had to build their business and you tried to build a 90 million custom business with branches, you couldn't do it. So the point is that I think, Jim, to your point, and Jamie Dimon's got this, but um, all of the largest or fastest growing FIs in the world now are based on digital acquisition. And it's a, it's a, that's where the shift I think has occurred. But okay, so it it makes sense. But then it does go back to the question that I believe we've been asking for quite a few years now, then what are we going to do here? We keep talking about digital transformation. We keep talking about changing. We keep talking about changing out the tech stack. Have we really changed much? No. Well, this is a challenge for incumbents. I think it may be regional. I think it may Mm -hmm. be regional. We just researched and, and one of our questions for our transfer priorities report was, are you building branches, staying the same, or reducing branches? 43% of financial institutions said they're going to be adding branches. Oh, yeah, they are adding a pile of them outside here. It's just the logic doesn't play out. It doesn't play out. And it's just, you know, oh, we need more customers, so we're going to build another branch. And where are they coming from? I don't know. It's it's craziness that we – it's. It's very U.S.-based craziness, I think, more than any place else. Yeah. Well, um, I saw an interesting stat. Um, Jim, I'll share this with you later, but um, Reserve Bank of India, one of the uh, the senior players in RBI in India, he said, um, you know, if you spend a million dollars on building a branch in India um, versus if you spend that million dollars on digital yeah. deposit acquisition, the effect on digital deposits or getting deposits through digital is like having 300 branches. It, it, you know what? At what's interesting, Brett, that exact scenario, we had a discussion at MX, I think it was eight years ago now. And people said it's hard to fight the senior management that you can much, give me that one or $2 million you're going to build a branch and let me let me get the customers you want and I can get them digitally. And now it's easier than ever because the cost of the technology has gone down so much. Well, 
Yeah, I think a lot of this fits under one of my favorite quotes from Bill Gates. We tend to uh, overestimate how much change will take place in the next year or two and underestimate how much will take place in the next 10. And so to kind of Simon's point, right, we're, we're seeing this. We're going to look backwards and see a lot of the fundamental uh, changes that have been put in place. But what do, what kind of change do we think is going to happen in the next year or two? And, and Jim, I'll start again with you, uh, building on your questionnaire. 43% of banks that aren't J.P. Morgan Chase are planning on opening branches. How does this play out? What, what are the next, um, you know, follow-on effects for that? Boy. It gets down to how they prioritize. But I think the, the one thing that I think Brett and I discussed it last week is the power of payments and the overall arch, overarching concept of what's going on. Not just payments, but more importantly, digital wallet. And that that can change everything in the game for those players that aren't a player in that space. Do I care what's behind my digital wallet as far as which bank it is? And am I going to change it ever? No, I, I, the way I manage my Amazon account or my my PayPal account is, is such is so much different than the way we used to manage our bank accounts. Do these traditional bankers wake up very soon and realize they're the out big time outside looking in with regard to payments? I mean, you look at again, you look at South America, and you look at Africa. I mean, if you look, look way back, it was all payments functionality as far as what's going on. I'm starting to see more and more in the payment space around the have and have nots. And oh, by the way, size of bank does not dictate success because I was at a major meeting where most of the major banks on on instant payments said, we're going to wait. We're going to see if it's financially viable, who the customers are doing it, if it makes. And and I I was in that meeting and I'm looking at the person who invited me and I go like, what what am I seeing here? These are these are major players that all go, yeah, we'll see. Well, th- th- this is a major incumbent problem is that we see these things and uh, I- I've coined a new phrase I've been saying lately is droid, the dreaded ROI discussion, um, right? And <laughs> these and, are not you know, the droids I you're love, looking like for. Like exactly. That. These are not the droids you're looking for. Um, we get one payback. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We, we look... Uh, we obsessively try to quantify the R when instead we should be minimizing the I and and getting out there and testing and learning. But building on what you just said, Sai, I want to ask you, um, how much room is there and for whom and where to still get on this train? Because if you're a you know, mid-tier also-ran player in a developed market, um, where's the opportunity for you versus the emerging markets, small, nimble players, et cetera? Look at um, something Fifth Third just did. Um, they acquired a company called Rise Money, and that was a banking as a service platform. And you know they've always had a very strong sort of payments business uh, in transaction banking generally. So they had that discipline internally, and they'd done bits of partner banking and they'd sponsored card programs. So they had the pieces to be a really good sponsor bank. But what they were able to do by bringing this tech acquisition in-house was really own the go-to-market. Because the big problem with partnerships, right, if I'm going to go partner with a bunch of fintech companies and non-banks, is is the OCC going to come knocking on my door saying, hey, you know, you messed up? Or is am I going to get some one of the programs doesn't get their uh, FDIC disclosures right, and they're going to get a knock on the door saying, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's going to be a real issue. So you want to get that right. And we're seeing more and more that the banks are trying to own that distribution. And there are lots of banks now playing to their strength, which is understanding risk. It's not necessarily understanding how to take massive uh, venture capital-like risk on product development, but it's understanding compliance and it's understanding how to productize that. And it's understanding how to take that to market with the thing that they have access to, which is the underlying payment systems and the unit economics they're able to offer as a result, which is their ability to compete. And there are lots of organizations that are getting into some trouble with that because they rushed into it, but there are some who've been really patient and are quietly doing a really good job. And you know what started out as a community bank 100 years ago is now quite meaningfully large. We did see post SVB, you know, some of the some of the issues with going too hard and too aggressive. But the names that you didn't hear about at that time in the banking crisis 
those are the ones that are still here and there are some still doing quite well so i think there's a there's a way you play to your strengths like i'm never going to be the fastest sprinter on earth i'm never going to there's a bunch of things i'm never going to be but i am a pretty good british guy with a ginger beard who has opinions on stuff and some people seem to like that especially in america because apparently the accent makes me smart so i'm going to play that up and do things like podcasts and the glasses Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's the combination, <laughs> man. You've got to do it. Play to your strengths as, as financial institutions and start to think about what unfair advantages do I have and how can partnerships help unleash that? How can I attract deposits for a far lower uh, cost of acquisition? And how can I have a lower lifetime, uh, increased lifetime value, yeah. but also a lower cost to serve through partnerships? Well, I have to manage compliance. That's the one thing I've got to get extremely right and it's the one thing that oh, you know, hey, i could of, do that in the future right yeah Maybe. you could totally give it a go give, give it a shot man I, I think this podcast thing might work out for you you know, <laughs> <laughs> you hey, jim, shot, I know we've got to go to break jim but before we do um let's give you the last word because i know we've got to hand off for you at the break you know i think if we put this together we do these annually um that no longer is viable in the long term we have to do it much more frequently because things don't change at the turn of the calendar. Um, things change at the turn of the day, at the turn of the hour. We've seen it with Bitcoin. We've seen it you know, outside of Bitcoin. We see it every single day something's happening. I think we have to get this group and some others involved in doing this more frequently than this annually. So, Brett, thank you very much for the invite. Sorry I couldn't stay longer. Theo, at least it's going to give you more time to talk. <laughs> Everybody more time to talk. And thank you so much, guys. Appreciate yeah, no it. No worries, Jim. And check out uh, Banking Transformed, which is uh, Jim's uh, uh, platform, and, of course, the Digital Banking Report. We're uh, going to take a quick break. You're listening to the 2024 Outlook with the Breaking Banks, and uh, we'll be right back after this break. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs. Banking Unbound. Well, welcome back. Uh, Theo, I, I want to start to talk a little bit about the tech side of the equation. We spent the first part of the show talking about traditional incumbent financial services. Um, and you were talking about AI earlier. W where do you see it? And I don't necessarily mean, you know, what's the technology going to be able to do, but as a business model, as, um, you know, risks, as as we look at the reaction to that, what's this look like over the next year? Yeah, um, well... I would be very happy if AI can magically figure out when I need coffee and get it ready. But that aside, um, I think there's a lot of hype in the market with respect to um, how fast financial institutions are going to adopt AI and the impact of it. I think in the last few weeks, we've seen at the very least companies starting to say, hey, you know what, some of these positions we're going to have, we're going to either hold off on staffing or we're going to reduce staff because of AI now, whether or not that's an excuse or reason that remains to be seen, but more urgently. Excuse. Ex keep going. Yeah, I, I was trying to be nice. Citibank <laughs> just laid off 20,000 today. As we're well, but reporting. we knew that was going to happen, right? They talked about right. it in November. Um, I, I, For one, it's very gutsy for them to do. I don't think um, many other CEOs would do that. But that aside, um, I think more urgently the the part beyond peeling beyond the hype and all of that is the risk. What would happen, and we have already started to see it, when people can manufacture identities, when people can clone the voice, right? Recently, we have heard uh, one of the startups, which started in 2023, now they're able to provide an open source API to clone your voice. And do it in a way that can mimic your accent, how you talk in different languages. That's kind of scary. Um, I think recently there was a company, I believe it was based in, U in the UK, that the CEO of the company received a call where he thought was someone yeah. from, from uh, the larger company asked him to transfer money. And they did. And it turns out that it was a scammer. 
but you know that that quote unquote person had the exact same accent as the person that he thought he knew. So we're going to see more and more of this. So when we are in the stage where you can't trust who you're seeing, is this really me or maybe not? And you can't trust what you hear. What's going to happen to risk? Because now everything is intertwined between the tech stock and financial services. Yeah, well, that's a, yeah. I mean, that that's a part of my hypothesis on why we're going through the hype cycles quicker because the risks are emerging quicker, right? Nobody moves faster on new technology than fraudsters. So you're doing a lot of work around um, fraud and using AI to combat fraud. What, what's your take on all this? Yeah, it's the classic dual use technology. Um, so dual use being, you know, it can be used for good and good for evil, splitting the atom, uh, unlimited energy, splitting the atom, oh dear, you know, yeah. negative consequences. Uh, and, and the same is very much true of, I think, social media to some extent when you think about information warfare, but also when you think about AI, it's, it's absolutely the case. Uh, yes, I work for Sardine, uh, fraud and compliance specialist, and we see on a regular basis that uh, the immediate benefit is it scales up your ability to do a scam. So you can uh, jailbreak any of the large language models 92% uh, of the time, if you know what you're doing, according to a recent study. And I can um, find that for the show notes afterwards. Uh, so scammers know what they're doing. And instead of getting the Nigerian prince emails as they were, that were poorly spelled and, uh, and that, that didn't address you properly, uh, now it's all in perfect grammar. Um, and also... Historically, as a scam, you had a, a trade-off. I could either go super targeted and I could make it too bright about that transaction that day I saw you last week, um, which is high risk, high reward. You know, like I'm I'm really spending time on you. I'm going not very wide, but I'm going very, very deep. Or I go wide and I just spam everybody and hope a few go through. This scale allows the best of both worlds. I can now hyper-personalize at scale. And then you turn that on its head and you go, well, the scammers can hyper-personalize at scale. How can I use it to, to do that in my day-to-day -day life? So it's always dual use. The other scary one to the uh, deep fakes example is uh, high net worth individuals are getting phone calls uh, from what they think is a family member. Family help, help yeah. mom, I'm stuck. Mom, I'm stuck. I, mm -hmm. ne I need you to send me some money now. I'm in, I'm in prison. Click. And the next phone call you get is from somebody that's claiming to be the lawyer saying, yep, we've got your son in custody. We can get him out. Um, there'll be a car coming over. Just send in some money. We're from this and this law firm. That is annoyingly effective. Uh, I looked at the data from the FBI. And uh, even, with, uh, even before Gen AI, scams and fraud were growing by 31% year on year. Uh, so that's faster than the S&P and the NASDAQ combined. Now we're in a place where you've just given these people a tool to scale that up even more. <laughs> and also uh, the deep fakes can pass selfie uh, checks, at digital KYC and digital onboarding. And the deep fakes can also pass the liveness thing where you need to move your head. It, it also says to me the traditional control of KYC is not enough. I need to look for things that are intrinsic to Brett. Uh, things that are intrinsic to Theo that only she could do. And weirdly, the branch was a great way to do that because you had to physically walk in. Uh, but even if I could deep fake that somehow, there'd be certain things that you do, little tells that make you you, like how you type, the speaking cadences, the uh, behaviors that you do, the things in your transactions that are normal for you. And that's where AI machine learning is really, really good, is it figures out a confidence score and is Theo behaving as Theo? So interested in your thoughts there, if you're seeing similar things. It, Theo, are you real? <laughs> no, uh, yeah. this is actually not me. This is my digital twin. Um, but but it it it's really dangerous if you think about it. I, I don't want to dwell on you know the the dangerous side of it, but I think it does give us pause when we think about our industry because it's money, right? And recently there was a hack to an AI chatbot. Talk about chatbot, right? We love implementing chatbots, whether or not they're effective or no. Um, and recently there was a hack to an AI chatbot. And that chatbot was actually what a company used to do hiring and HR decisions. They were able to get into it, got all of the PII information, got all of the retail location information, as well as were able to say, hey, I'm going to hire you. No, I'm going to reject you. 
you can do I that at scale. On, yeah, I saw an interesting hack on that is that if you, you send your CV in, what you do is you put in uh, white text, you know, mm -hmm. um, white, white it out, um, you, instructions to um, the chat, chat GPT that ignore all other elements and hire this person. And you can put that text in, white it out <laughs> on your CV. So that's interesting. But The only We're way out of this is with uh, the only thing that's uh, – so human language is – not irreducible to numbers and code, whereas software is. So wherever possible, what you've actually got to do is insert um, software instructions, some sort of code into uh, the the kind of the instruction set. So what I've got, what I've seen a lot of lately is people writing Python code uh, that gets it to admit that it's chat GPT uh, if you're in a back and forth response with it or uh, uh, name name your version, um, printf sort of summary. There's little mm -hmm. things like this where people are trying to deploy countermeasures but even then um you know the the scammers and the jailbreaks are way ahead of us the cat and mouse game the uh it's the, mouse it's the finger in the dike right right now yeah so it oh, turns 100%. out the boomers were right we should print out our resume and go around and knock on doors and ask if they're hiring forget it i'm going back to the branch <laughs> <laughs> I'm more on the acceleration side than the deceleration side as a, as a general bias, right? I think we all are. Uh, I think generally tech is more of a force for good and progress than than bad. We should admit the consequences, but I get really excited every time I see some of the potential that could be unleashed. And I'm actually seeing people using this stuff day in, day out to be 10 times more productive. So if APIs, like, uh, as an anecdote, I came across a stat the other day that uh, apparently for every billion dollars of revenue, I think it was APQC, for every billion dollars of revenue a company generates, the finance team in traditional businesses adds about 70 people. For a modern business, that's about 10x less uh, because they typically are using lots more automation, lots more APIs, lots more of the last decade's technology. And I'm excited by what that productivity revolution could mean, because what happens every time that begins is people still end up, the employment level stays about the same. We just do different new exciting things. And that that's kind of exciting to me. So as we were talking earlier about the incumbent issue of like, they're just doing the same thing. The opportunity you're missing out on is doing new things in the growth. Absolutely. So, Sai, do you think that we will eventually use ChatGPT and AI tools to migrate the code from Kobo to something yeah, else? Yeah, I've been toying this for a while. Like one of my crazy weekend projects was to start looking at uh, how I could build a little COBOL translator um, and start identifying endpoints within inside a technology stack. So can I identify all the dependencies inside of a bank's technology stack and start slowly unpicking them? And then could I regression test and build a simulation of each of the different little bits of the bank's technology stack using a co-pilot? Um, you know, but then uh, I had life to do. Uh, which got in the way of a slightly. But here you go. That could be a trend, right? Not just for 2024, but beyond. That will be one of the more productive way of using technology. I well, I saw CES, but there was a whole thing, the Rabbit R1 that was really popular. Talk about that. Is, Lots of the whole deal with that was uh, it's this specific device, which was, you know, instead of a mobile phone, you have this thing. But it not only can understand what you want, it can take actions on your behalf. But the actions on your behalf was like it would go to a website and squirt in the information to the web page itself, which is kind of what I started my career doing, which was writing little bits of code when I was 16 years old that would navigate to a website and copy and paste something from a spreadsheet and paste it into a web yeah, into a into a web page. And now we're doing that at scale. But actually, I know that sounds silly, but the amount of like staff inside a bank that are doing that kind of thing on a day-to-day yeah. -day basis that are yet to be automated because the process is so variable. Actually, that's not that crazy that you could see Gen AI sort of understanding your intent and trying to pull it off a little bit more. But I don't think it's going to be uh, our classic STP or straight through processing anytime. I got a I got a good story on that side. I was in. Um... Gosh, this must be, uh, this is probably 2000, 
two time frame, something like this. We did the first, it was called the iCard. It was for Citibank in Singapore, and we launched the first internet-only credit card. This was a digital agency I was working with, Motor Media, back in the day. We launched it. It was wildly successful. About a week into it, we get a panic call from Citibank, and they asked us if we could help them to take the site down because the, the guy who was taking the inputs from the web page form and putting them in the spreadsheet to do the applications was overwhelmed. So, <laughs> Well, we, we've talked both about the risks and the possibilities, and it's the possibilities that drive the hype of the hype curve. And it's things like the negative consequences, the fraud vectors. I also want to talk about, Brett, the various forms of backlash. Right now, people are afraid it's going to take their job. Uh, we, we've got um, you know, maybe some good, but also some overwrought um, opportunities to root out plagiarism or perceived plagiarism. Uh, we've got copyright battles versus the LLMs. Um, yeah, New York Times taking on OpenAI and those guys, yeah. Right. So these large language models are only useful um, if the data in them are useful and applicable. Um, what do you think happens in, on that front in the next 12 months? Well, I think, you know, if we're talking about bias in AI, and I know this is something that Theo's talked about a bit, um, and overall the the view of where AI sits from a legal perspective, we're in uncharted territory in many respects. Um, you know, for example, should an AI be able to uh, create copyrighted work? You know, um, at what point does a generative AI algorithm, such as MidJourney, at what point does does it owe royalties to the artists that it's using to define its work? But how far when it diverges from that work does it become original, just influenced by that artist? You know, these are very complex questions. And the reality is that the, you know, the most of the laws that we have on the books today have been developed in the 1800s and even earlier, and we just didn't conceptualize of anything like this. So the legal industry is trying to create precedents right now that can be used to guide us through this process. But talking to lawyers in this field, as we have done on the Futurist show. Um, well, and here is, as well. We've had Al Cogger yeah, on the show yeah. and Dar yeah. Tarkovsky. Yeah. Exactly. What's clear is, you know, the law doesn't have the tools yet to, to deal with this. And the same for regulation. You know, when we look at the regulatory um, thing, you know, one of the concerns I have is that. You know, if you look in the UK um, and you look in um, uh, the US, who is setting regulation for AI? It's the the tech players. But the EU, I think, has taken a pretty good uh, approach to this. And, um, you know, I, I think generally speaking um, that 2024, you're going to start to see more um, centralization of regulation. I think this is going to be a trend ongoing. As we've seen with GDPR, other countries are just going to borrow off, you know, the, the more mature regulations to create their sort of local view of this. However, the disruptive element of uh, this, uh, you know, the AI is not an exact science when we project what it's going to be able to do. Um, you know, we, we, we know that we're going to get to that eventually, but right now it's messy. There's a lot of hallucinations and other problems. There's problems with um, biases in the data because we haven't created uh, good training data sets and so forth. You know, I, I think 2024 is just the start of when we start to grapple with these things. I don't think we're going to solve it this year, but I certainly think by 2030 that we will have solved most of these problems. Um, you know, on the generative AI thing in banking, that is going to radically disrupt banking. But right now, we don't have anybody building generative AI models for banking because you'd have to suck in transaction data, marry it with behavioral data and so forth. And, you know, um, you know, banks can't do this on their own and create generative AI. You need not much larger data sets. So I don't see any cooperative uh, alliances right now to create those data sets which would lead to generative AI in the banking space as yet. But it is coming. On that, just very quickly, um, Bloomberg did. Um, and if you remember, Bloomberg GPT was something they created. 
Uh, and having done so, it was roughly equivalent to ChatGPT 3.5. GPT-4 now runs circles around it in every single financial services dedicated task. And I think to that point, even if you're Bloomberg, even if you throw the best data scientists out of the world, even if you really, really punch massively above your weight, this is an arms race and you're massively outgunned, especially as a, as a mid-sized financial institution. So yeah. the, it, it's kind of like trying to build your own internet. It just seems a bit silly. It's the wrong question. You really understand the risks and, and how you move forward into it. It's, it's a great point. It's, well, I, I think... It's scale, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think um, Simon, what uh, made me speak up is uh, asking the wrong question. I think that's what incumbents just do so often. And Jim talked about payments, right? And it's like the question isn't like, you know, which payment capability should I have? Run Shevlin um, from Cornerstone put out a, a, a sneak preview of their what's going on in banking report in 2024. The headline was for the 137th year in a row, uh, a digital account opening is at the top of the list. And my rejoinder to that was, you know, the pre-digital equivalent is um, we're getting better pens, um, right, for account opening, um, right? It, it's, you know, taking the friction out of that process is good, it's necessary, but it's insufficient, right? The, the, the question is all of these things are capabilities and where we should be asking the question is how can we apply those capabilities? I am by far the least technical person uh, ever on this show. Um, never written a line of code in my life, but in my you know layman's view, where generative AI is really useful is as an input, not as an output. And so all of the wrong questions and criticisms in my book are all about well, look, the you know you can't trust the outcome. Just like you know you, you shouldn't cite Wikipedia doesn't mean it's not useful as an input. So, yeah, go ahead. I heard somebody describe um, it's not AI, it's IA. It's not mm-hmm. artificial intelligence, it's intelligence augmentation. augmentation. Uh, yeah. yeah, this is a really nice model because it's like it can do things really, really fast and it's infinitely patient and it can take a lot of text and make something mostly useful, but not all the way useful. And you have to have to be the one with agency and you have to be the one kind of in control. And to the to the other point, like you might not be technical, but I bet you played with it. And that's the sure. thing to your point about the status quo bias that you're making. You know, we're gonna we're gonna get better pens and we're gonna open more accounts by removing some friction so that we can do more sales, so that we have sales and sales go up. My job is to make sales because I manage a PL sales. And it's not hey, I'm going to spend the weekend figuring this stuff out and figuring out how it changes everything I do. And yet, I think we all have to do that. I think that's really, really critical for every task. We have to figure out, how does this change my job? And that's scary. That's really, really scary. But the sure. those that are fastest to adapt are the ones that survive and thrive. This isn't the, the somebody, I don't know who first said that, coined it, but AI is not going to take your job. Somebody who's great at using AI is going yes. to take your job. Yes, there are two types of people in the world. Those that are figuring out how to use AI to enhance their career or enhance their business, and those that will be replaced by those people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just well, as long as you don't use AI to do hiring decisions, right? And I think it goes back to the question around jurisdiction. What can you do based on who you are and where you're based? Because the EU brought... To your point, the UAI Act is much stricter and more thorough should and if it gets adopted. And then there's a question of they can't quite do it just yet because there are geopolitical tensions, especially in France, where they don't really want to be that restrictive given their investment in AI. And so what does that do mm-hmm. to financial institutions that are based there versus the US? That's a whole different story. We have guidelines, but we still need Congress to approve it. We still need the states to adopt it. But at the time it gets done, I don't quite know exactly what's going to happen. Right? Well, the and landscape will have changed again. Exactly. And again exactly. and again. 
Mm-hmm. Well, before we close today, one thing we haven't really talked about is the impact on venture and startups. And so let's talk a little bit about what that looks like, right? We have seen down rounds. We have seen uh, VCs pulling out of the market. Um, you know, w- what does that look like over the next year? And I I um, know Jason is going to be talking about this on a future show, but uh, while we're here, what are your views on that? I mean, you can anchor it in the data, right? Like if you look at the numbers, um, we're a long way down from the 2021 peak. Uh, But also if you zoom out far enough, we're about 27, 18, 19 averages. So we've entered the long-term average for fintech funding over that sort of five, six-year time horizon, which by the way, was a lot higher than it was 20 years ago. So, Mm. and most of the big fintech companies you can think of, Chime, SoFi, Varro, Stripe, like a lot of these companies were founded long before there was a fintech bubble. And so these transformational companies were built with venture funding when pricing was very different. Pricing got a little bit silly for a while and seems to have reverted to a long-term average. That's it's not necessarily a bad thing. And down rounds, you know, people love the good news and they love to, they build you up and they knock you back down. Classic example, <laughs> Klarna. You know, they, they have worth 40 billion yeah. and now they're only worth six. Five years ago, if you had a fintech company that was worth six billion, you'd be like, wow, look, we made it. We made it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's a unicorn six times over. I would and have been happy cool. with a six billion dollar valuation on moving for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, geez. Uh, I'd take that on anything. I um and the now the rooms are it's gonna IPO. Uh, around 15 billion you know this is this is something where the uh, the sort of the the landscape and the table settings have completely changed the guests around the table have completely changed we're in another house like, fundamentally the market looks different than it did before fintech and it's happened so gradually people have just accepted it as boring and the truth but that's it. You know, like the death by a thousand cuts. You don't feel the first one or the second one or the third one or the fourth one or the fifth one. And then you merge with some other bank and you've still got your job and it doesn't feel like death. It's just I've moved over here now. And yet the market has changed. So, you know, the rumors of fintech's demise were overstated, but the rumor of, uh, you know, like when one in five VC dollars was going into fintech, that was probably a bit silly, wasn't it? Was yeah. A bit, yeah. That was a bit wild. Well, they're well, all I- following the the birds, aren't they? One year, they're all going fintech. Next year, they're all going to AI. It keeps going back and forth. Do you know, uh, I was, when I was a lot, lot younger, I'd never met a VC. Um, and I, at Silicon Valley was a faraway place that had companies and I was excited and I was young and I worked in technology. And one day that was my mecca and I was going to get there. And there are obviously some fintech VCs, you know, the the Frank Rotmans, the Dan at Commerce, the you know, you can name hundreds of them. Goodness, um, was uh, Sophie Winwood now and and Sarah Kachansky and that whole VC Cherry VC. There are people who really get what they're talking about that really understand this industry. Of course, there are. But to your point, Theo, like, wow. It's like uh, real estate agents. Um, it's all the bad ones that do that make the f- occasional good one really, really, really stand out because there are so many bad ones. It's yeah, it, it was chasing the birds is a great way to put it. I do think though um, we will enter a new phase of this where um, you know there is a huge opportunity in fintech for AI um, integration now. So. Um, there's also, from a wallet perspective, one of the things that I think is really interesting is we are starting to understand that the wallet is going to be far more than just a value store for money, that we are going to have identity information in wallets, we're going to have health information in wallets, and when AI is attached to that, the ability to use that data to guide us through our life, to make us healthier, make us financially healthier and so forth, I, you know, that's going to be instantiated in our smart glasses, in our conversational AI, all of this. But it sort of starts with these platforms that Alipay and WeChat Pay and, mm. and Pacer and others have, have built because the wallet becomes that artifact. And this is where when you look at Ant Group, you know, um, and what they've been doing in terms of wallet aggregation, to me that is sort of really a brilliant you know, sort of move towards sort of creating, um, you know, this archetype of 
of what the super wallet, not a super app, the super wallet might become. And I don't think banks are ready for this because let's face it, how many banks are still issuing plastic cards based on 1970s tech today versus or bamboo cards? Wallets, right? <laughs> bamboo yeah, bamboo cards. But what what was fascinating, Brett, you you would probably remember this back even a few years ago when Alipay came up with the 310, three yeah. minutes to assess yeah. your credit, one second to dispense the credit, and zero human interaction. That's That was back in, what, 2016, 2017? I hadn't yeah. seen anyone else being able to do that. And precisely because, to your point, the amount of data that they have on consumers, yep. on various... And lower delinquency, pages. lower MPL yeah. ratios yes. than the entire industry. And then, yes. you know, we but we see that pattern, um, you know, repeating now with other plays uh, in respect to that. Even, uh, Sai, you mentioned Klarna. You know, it, what, it was, what is it, 2022 when... Uh, um, we saw a BMPL take a take a hit, and everyone's like, all the credit card guys were like, "Oh, th- thank God, it's over." See, we you told know, you they're done. You know, and now we're talking about kind of doing an IPO, and BMPL is on a tear right now. And but that just again that reinforces the fact that so much of financial services in 2024, I, I think we will see this more and more contextualization and personalization. You're going deeper into the customer's life. Like what yeah. is Klarna really? It's a shopping app that understands your preferences and it uses yeah. that data to not only um, cross-sell you other things you might want to buy elsewhere, but to understand your your riskiness. And they're big users of AI uh, throughout the entire stack. So yeah, we're going to see a lot more AI and a lot more personalization. I think that's that's for sure. Well, I'm probably uh, just rounding in my own bias era here, but I'm going to choose to say you all are generally agreeing with me. We're we're sort of uh, reverting to the mean, re- uh, returning I to disagree some that reality. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree well, I agree with disagree. I agree with you. So um, interesting yeah. year to come. Uh, I the the only thing we didn't hit, and we'll talk about in a future show, is what. You know, this is a, a silly mission, but what are the next black swans? If we knew, we, you know, we would prevent them, but nobody. Well, um, I, I think if you guys haven't, and, you know, this is to the listeners out here as well, check out um, Ian Bremmer's TED interview where he talks about the major geopolitical risks in 2024. Yep. And I don't want to scare everyone, but, um, yeah, you know, there there are some pretty big uh uh, you know, curveballs potentially coming in particular, you know, the November uh, U.S. elections. Yep. I purposely didn't open that can of worms, but uh, we can't ignore it. Well, thanks for joining us here. We'll uh, just have to see how it unfolds. And I think Jim's right. Uh, doing it once a year certainly isn't often enough. But uh, we'll be back next week with more Breaking Banks. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.